0: This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. I'm Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, and this episode, we are about to go paddling 2,000 miles down the Yukon River. It's going to be an absolutely epic adventure. Are you ready? Let's go. It's one of the most incredible journeys in the world. We're going to be traveling all the way from the source of the Yukon in northern Canada through Alaska to the Bering Sea, and we're going to be in very good company for it. Adam Weymouth is quite simply the kind of writer I want to be when I grow up. He is the Sunday Times best young writer of 2018, and his book, Kings of the Yukon, which tells the story of this epic 2,000 mile journey is just beautiful. It's poetic, it's insightful, it's important, and quite simply, it's the kind of book that makes you want to quit your job and head out into the wild. And by the way, that is my kind of book. But this isn't just any old adventure. The kings of the Yukon are the Chinooks, the king's salmon, who travel every year in their tens of thousands from the mouth of the Yukon to the spawning grounds of their birth, 2,000 miles away. It is one of the most remarkable journeys in the animal kingdom, but it's also one of the most important journeys because the lives of the people that live on that river, many of them First Nation people who are native to the area and have lived there for thousands of years, depend on that salmon to to survive but that run that salmon run is now under threat and that's the story adam's going to tell it's a story about the king salmon and their relationship to the people in the river it's a story about indigenous versus modern ways of thinking and it's a story about drifting through one of the most pristine and beautiful places on earth i cannot wait to get started But first, if you are enjoying the show, please help spread the word, leave a review, tell a friend. We are building a community of people that love the outdoors and want to celebrate it by immersing themselves in every inch of it. And when you help our community grow, you help that message grow too. The Facebook page is Armchair Explorer Podcast. My Instagram is Aaron M. Writer. And you can sign up to the newsletter on the website, armchair-explorer.com, where you can also book, all the trips that you hear about on this show. Finally, a big shout out to Adam Weymouth, our guest today. His book, Kings of the Yukon, is out now. It has quickly become one of my favorite pieces of nature writing ever, and I urge you to check it out. I'll stick those details up on the website. But before you do, get ready, because we are just about to set out on a 2,000-mile journey down one of the wildest rivers on the planet in search of the kings of the Yukon.
1: I first went to Alaska in 2013 and ostensibly I went as a as an environmental journalist. But I suppose the real reason that I went was that I'd always been lured to the north in some way. There was... I was reading Call of the Wild when I was pretty small and seeing White Fang at the cinema and then the book and the film of Into the Wild that came out when I was... Pretty impressionable, twenty-something. There was this just idea of the north as being this kind of vast, wild, untamed space that I wanted to go and go and experience in some way. And, and, and living in London, it yeah, it just felt like a, an absolute contrast to, to where the, to where I was living. The lure
0: of the north, the call of the wild. Jack London wrote about it as those wild yearnings and stirrings for he knew not what. I've always loved that line. There is just something about the far north, some emptiness, some wildness and purity because it's never been tamed that does just call to you. And perhaps nowhere more so than the Yukon where this journey begins, straddling the northwest corner of Canada between Alaska where the Yukon River eventually flows and the northwest territories. It is just enormous. It is empty. There are more moose than people that live there and there's grizzly bears and wolverines and bald eagles. And that is where we're about to go. But first, we need to understand why Adam's going. And that story begins a couple of years before he set out on his canoe, before this journey, at a small town called Bethel in Alaska, at the mouth of the Yukon River, where it flows into the Bering Sea.
1: I'd been put in touch with a man called Mike Williams, who was then leader of the Yupik people. And Mike had invited me out to his little village of Akiak out on the delta. And all flights to get to Akiak have to go through Bethel. There's no no roads out there. Getting a plane is the only way in. And Mike said to me that whilst I was in Bethel, it might be worth checking out a trial that was happening at the time. And the phrase that Mike said to me that really stuck was... Gandhi had his salt and we have our salmon.
0: Okay, this is important. Gandhi's salt march took place in 1930 and it was a response to the British rule in India at the time, which had placed a ban on Indians selling or collecting salt, um, which forced them to buy it from the British instead at a much, much more expensive price and with a hefty salt tax added on. Many people suffered as a result of this, particularly the poor. So Gandhi decided to march his followers from his ashram, 240 miles to the Arabian Sea, where he planned to intentionally break the ban by making salt there, making it actually from the sea. And he started with a few dozen people, but by the end of it, there were tens of thousands. Many were arrested, including Gandhi himself. But it worked. So the trial that Mike was talking about was between 23 Yupik fishermen, First Nation fishermen and the Alaskan Fish and Game Department who had put a ban on fishing king salmon due to a dramatic and sudden crash in their numbers which threatened the very existence of the species themselves. No one knew exactly why the numbers had declined so swiftly. Uh, Many people argued that poor management and regulation by the Alaskan Fish and Game Department were at least partly to blame. Uh, everyone agreed that something needed to be done. But what's almost certain is that it wasn't the fault of the First Nation people, most of whom were subsistence fishermen and women, and most of whom had lived in harmony with the kings and the river for thousands Of years. So the 23 Yupik fishermen defied the ban on purpose, arguing that catching the king salmon was part of their cultural heritage. They argued that the salmon were not just food or even a livelihood, they were part of their spiritual practice, a thread that bound their communities and generations together, and a vital cultural tradition that would simply die out if they weren't allowed to do it. Gandhi had his salt, the Yupik had their salmon. There were tears in the courtroom when they spoke.
1: And it seemed to me that in the courtroom, these two very different ways of looking at the world were being forced up against each other. On the one hand, you had the Alaska Department of Fish and Game who felt that there was this critical need to preserve this species. On the other hand, you had these Yupik fishermen who were saying, well, we need to preserve our culture and and, and this is what our culture hinges upon. It's not just about food, but this this is our way of life. And it seemed to me that there was this much bigger story to be told I'd already seen travelling in Alaska the first time just how important salmon was in every aspect of people's lives and, and it seemed that I could tell this story of the salmon and and use it as a way of kind of opening up the story of, of the people living along the Yukon. There's five species of of salmon that migrate up the Yukon River but it's the kings that travel furthest and the kings that go the very furthest go almost 2,000 miles against the current high up into the mountains, the Penny Mountains in Canada, and reach a place called McNeil Lake. It's an incredible
0: journey. Every year, millions of salmon make the 2,000-mile trip down the Yukon. It's the longest salmon run in the world, swimming against the current for up to 50 miles in a single day. Think about that. That's like running an ultramarathon into a gale-force wind every day for months uphill they'll actually ascend more than 3,000 feet through that journey too, literally leaping above the rapids. And they're so determined to reach their destination that they don't feed at all the entire way. But the really amazing thing is where they're going, because those king salmon are returning home. The young salmon will leave their spawning grounds, spend years at sea, covering vast distances, and then return home at the end of their life to the exact location of their birth to spawn themselves. To this day, no one quite knows how they find their way from the ocean back to their home river, which may be thousands of miles away. They might use the sun, the currents, the Earth's magnetic field. But then once they're there, once they've arrived at the mouth of the Yukon, they can actually smell the precise combination of minerals and other elements that make up their individual birthing pool, even though it may be as far away as New York is to Denver. They can smell it and that scent pulls them like a thread, inexorably, relentlessly, towards their home.
1: I began the journey with a guy called Hector McKenzie. I, I'd done absolutely no canoeing before I began this trip. I sold the idea for the book and it was only afterwards sitting in a meeting with my editor when she asked me exactly how much canoeing experience I had. And I told her that I spent about an afternoon in a canoe up till that point.
0: What? An afternoon in a canoe and then you're just going to jump headfirst into a 2,000 mile paddle down the Yukon River, one of the wildest, longest rivers in the world. I think that's brilliant. It's crazy, but it's brilliant too. As the great and very wise Eckhart Tolle says, life is an adventure. It's not a package tour. Sometimes you just got to jump headfirst in.
1: But sometimes it's smarter to ask a friend. And so I managed to get in touch with this guy called Hector, who's a, who was Hector McKenzie, who was a Scot, who'd been living out in Canada for about 50 years and had guided and skied and climbed all over the world. And, and Hector was kind of my lifeline in those first few days. We landed on McNeil Lake and it was just at the end of winter. No one had really been able to tell us, before we got the plane up there, whether the, the lake would still be completely frozen. We got dropped on the, on by this beach next to this trapper's cabin, which was probably the only sign of life in about a hundred miles. It's this incredibly remote landscape, and we began the journey on a river that was almost a stone's throw from bank to bank. This this tiny little babbling stream that that fell down out of the mountains. And having Hector with me on those first few days was was. I was really thrown in at the deep end. There's vast rapids on, on, on the first few days. I've been told by someone that they were grade six, which doesn't even exist. And I can only imagine that he got confused by the by the length of the rapids, which were, there were about six miles of them. But they, they felt grade six to me. They weren't grade six. That would be like a tsunami rushing
0: down a river. But the size of the rapids is not what makes this trip dangerous. It's the remoteness and the isolation and there's something amazing in that, to be completely alone in nature, no civilization or other people around to spoil it at all. And that's something that we don't often get to experience. But it's also a little scary, isn't it? Because if anything goes wrong, they would be completely
1: alone. I, I was so recently arrived from London, It was it was astonishing in a way that it was only three days in order to get from London to this incredibly remote wilderness, that the consequences of losing a canoe or breaking a canoe or losing all our gear still hadn't really become apparent to me. The, uh, the idea that there wasn't just help around the corner or a call that we could put in. It, it was the beginning of a realisation that would stay with me for the entire trip, that there was this very heavy level of self-reliance that was required. And if we ended up in a situation, whether through our fault or through no fault of our own, we were the only people that were going to be able to extricate ourselves from it. So the first few days down from the lake were were fairly pleasant, and it was about the fourth day that we came to the first rapids. We'd spent the morning kind of tying down our lines and making plans about what to do if we lost each other, what to do if we lost the boat. It was already a pretty long walk to Whitehorse by that point. And... (sighs) It was such a blur in a way, that the, 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 the rapids, just these vast torrents of water with these huge mounds of rock which had tumbled from distant mountainsides and these gaping holes that came came beyond them. And I, I was really very much in Hector's hands just sort of telling me where to paddle and where to aim for and pulling back and, and shooting forward whilst Hector in a kind of happy oblivion in the back would describe the the bird species to me as we kind of fell through these different rapids. There was about half a day of this and and it was only at the end as we as we popped out of the last one that, that Hector turned to me and he said, I used to scare myself about once a week. Now I try and keep it to once a year and I really hope that that was it. This episode
0: of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at nissanusa.com. I love that quote because it is good to scare yourself a little. It is good to challenge yourself. That's what real adventure is all about. But I'm with Hector once or twice a year is probably enough these days. So they made it through the rapids, and over the next couple of weeks, they gradually drifted south, down a smaller tributary of the Yukon to the First Nation village of Teslin. And Adam picks up the story now, having just dropped Hector off in the village and continuing on his own now for the first time, turning north towards Dawson City and the Alaskan border some 500 miles away.
1: From Teslin Lake, the river fed into Teslin River before it finally joined the proper main stem of the Yukon week or two later. This section of the Yukon is really iconic for, for the Klondike gold rush which which a lot of people will know about the the 1896 gold rush when hundreds of thousands of people flooded into the country from, for, from all over the world seeking rumoured fortunes and fortunes that a few people made and, and most didn't and the town of Dawson City which the Yukon sits on which I spent a couple of weeks in is still very much under the uh, the awe of, of Jack London and the Gold Rush and there's still can-can shows every night and dancing girls and boardwalks that have retained their sort of 1890s character and all the rest of it. There's a very sort of uh, romanticised vision of, of, of what the Gold Rush was, although I became very clear talking to First Nations people that there was this much darker side as well, that there was really the the beginning of a Terrible decline for a lot of First Nations cultures.
0: It's not a side of the gold rush story, shamefully, that we hear very often, but it's true. Before 1896, when all the hordes of gold seekers stampeded north on their canoes and steamers and steep mountain trails, the lives of the First Nation people that lived there hadn't changed for thousands of years. They followed the seasons and the animals, moving through a series of camps. Summer was for fishing, autumn they headed into the hills and hunted caribou and sheep. In winter, they sheltered in the cold and hunted moose. In spring, they trapped beaver and muskrat. But by 1897, just one year after the gold rush started, they had been displaced from their fish camps on the river and kicked off their hunting grounds. In the turn of one season, they found themselves evicted from the land which they had called home for millennia.
1: The other thing that was really apparent to me paddling down the Yukon was just this sense of of almost time going backwards We were kind of used to this sense of of progress that there's always more development and more technology and more stuff and and on the Yukon it feels almost the reverse. You'd pull the canoe over to the side of the river and come across these huge rotting paddle steamers that had once brought people up and down the river several times a week. There's now pretty much no trade on the Yukon at all and, and these things have just been left to rot when they became unviable or an old telegraph wire that still runs the length of the Yukon for several hundred miles that's not used anymore. So there's a real sense of almost kind of nature reasserting control as the people have moved on and and the land is kind of going back to what it once was. And that was really clear in the animals as well. Some amazing animal sightings, a a couple of lynx sunning themselves by the side of the... By the side of the river, otters playing. One day, I saw a wolverine, which was which was astonishing. I'd met people in Alaska that have only seen a couple of wolverines in a whole lifetime of living there. So, a wolverine swimming across the river from bank to bank, and a lot of moose and black bears and, and, and grizzlies. Just just a very different scale in every way from from where that I from where I'd come from. In the book, he writes, too, of his
0: awareness changing the longer he stays out in the wild. He writes, It is becoming increasingly easy to read shapes into the landscape, to see a pair of moose antlers in a distant piece of driftwood, to focus in on a fleck of white from half a mile away and spot a bald eagle sitting motionless. He writes that the sand holds the stories of the night, the hoof prints of moose and calf like two series of quotation marks emerging from the water and making off into the willows. It is all there in my field of vision, moose, osprey, fish, river, and it could be this time or it could be any other. I love that last line, and it could be this time or it could be any other. Timeless, cyclical, and we are just drifting through
1: just after Dawson the Yukon crosses the American Canadian border just before a little town called Eagle it's a pretty relaxed border crossing you just have to go into a little cabin when when you arrive in the town of Eagle and pick up a phone which has a direct link to customs and they ask you if you've got any guns on you and you say that you don't and they tell you very good then off you go enjoy your trip and about 12 miles after Eagle I'd heard about a guy called Andy Bassich Andy, I'd already known of because he was—he's uh, a reality TV star um, on the show Life Below Zero. And this is one of the very strange peculiarities of, of the Yukon. I stayed with no less than four different people on this on this journey that make their living from reality TV.
0: It's bizarre, isn't it? I mean, we all watch those shows, don't we, from time to time? It's interesting to see someone living out just a completely different kind of life off the land, off grid. But the truth is it's very hard to live a complete subsistence existence. You need money even out here for gas and sugar and coffee and a hundred other little things. The problem is there's not many jobs and less every year. So being a reality TV star of all things, uh, just about the most on-grid thing in the world, has become one of the only ways to make off-grid living work. It's just a weird, horrendous kind of irony, isn't it? These people that ran away from the modern world end up making their living being watched by the very people they ran away from. As Adam writes in the book, Alaska may well have the highest ratio of television celebrities in the world. Take that, LA.
1: The instructions that Andy had given me to find his place was 12 miles out of Eagle on the left. And so I pulled up there in the early evening. Although already my, my, my notion of time was getting quite distorted, the it was light for about 23 hours of every day, and and these sunsets would almost stretch into sunrises over the course of the evening. Andy's setup is is amazing. Andy grew up in Pennsylvania and came, I guess, like me, like a lot of people that I met, into the Yukon as a young man. He was in his 20s when he. He he said that his grandmother gave him the best piece of advice he'd ever had which was that you've got got your whole life ahead of you to make money and become someone when you're young is the time to, to, to explore and to have fun and he quit the job that he was doing and he drove north and he got a canoe and he paddled down the Yukon and one day he floated into the town of Eagle and he got there on July the 3rd and he decided to stick around for the party on July the 4th and then he stuck around forever and he had this amazing setup on his land, he, this whole kind of network of cabins which were places for living but also saunas and music practice rooms and artists' retreats and a place for boat building and a workshop and just, just to kind of, I suppose completely unencumbered by space, he could just kind of let his imagination run riot. And we sat out on the porch and Andy was telling me his stories. He gave me glasses of his homemade beer and moose steaks from... those oh, caribou steaks, I believe, actually, from a caribou that he'd killed and wild greens that he'd gathered. It was this incredibly idyllic version of, of of what it is to live out in the bush in Alaska. And I was talking to Andy about how amazing his his place was and he told me that he'd had to rebuild the entire thing since 2009 that he'd lost the entire thing in 2009
0: okay this is a crazy story and by the way how awesome is andy's grandmother you've got your whole life ahead of you to make money when you're young is the time to explore and have fun amen to that except when you're old and middle-aged and everywhere in between is a pretty good time to explore by my book too but what happened to them is scary actually the yukon flooded it's called breakup and it can be deadly.
1: What's called breakup is 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 when the at the start of spring the ice can all go out in a in a rush. It's something which has happened earlier and earlier. There's records which have been kept in Dawson. People actually bet on it in Dawson have betted on the time it would go out for the last hundred years. And those uh, records of, of of who's won every year can can show you that the time is getting earlier and earlier. And It seems that as the breakups are getting earlier, they also happen much more violently. Quite often, all the ice will build up in this kind of barrage down the stream and the floodwaters will all back up.
0: On that day, the water rose six feet in five minutes. Millions of tonnes of ice surged downstream and backed up the river. It overwhelmed his cabins, his kennels, his entire life that he'd spent years building. And then it got worse. Kate, his partner's canoe, suddenly got snagged on a tree and was about to capsize. And if she went in, there could be no... Hope of survival. She says she looked at Andy and just said goodbye. But somehow he got to her, he cut the line, he saved her. And then the dogs went over, he had 24 sleigh dogs, which he'd placed on a small boat when the water levels began to rise. And when that flipped, all 24 dogs went in the river. Some were swept away, some he managed to save. But by the end of it, 23 dogs, wet, miserable, shaking, had somehow survived. As had Andy and Kate, floating in the dark in two canoes, all their possessions, everything they owned, drowned beneath them.
1: And I suppose it was my first indication that the Yukon is this incredibly violent beast <laughs> and uh, and living on it is not this purely idyllic place place to be. It's, it's the kind of the forceful side of, of what we romanticise as the wilderness and also how that forceful side is becoming more and more unpredictable as, as as climate change gets worse by the time that I left Andy I'd probably been on the river for maybe a month or so and the river was really starting to change coming through Canada it would it would race along at times sometimes it was 10-12 miles an hour but now still maybe 1,500 miles from the sea it really starts to slow down and, and widen out And I suppose I was also kind of settling into into the journey and really getting to this routine of of camping every night, sort of a couple hours setting up the the tent and then a couple more hours um, putting everything back in the morning and loading the canoe again. The fishing season was starting. We were starting to see salmon coming up the river. I remember there was a moment uh, coming around a place called Bishop Rock and seeing a lot of what are called pink salmon, which have these kind of humps, and seeing a lot of them at one point kind of cresting the surface for a moment, almost looked like the water was boiling. And the indigenous people were changing as well, so there were, so from the Tlingit territories in, in Canada and in the early part of Alaska, there was then the Athabascan areas, which is most of the central part of Alaska, and then finally coming into the Yupik areas of the, uh, as, as we got closer to the sea. And one of those people that I met was this woman, an uh, old Athabascan elder called Mary Dimientev.
0: There are some lovely passages here. The land feels more fleshed out, more intact than any other I have known. Beside a creek, I watch a grayling sucking flies from off the surface of the water. I watch a bald eagle poised on the crown of a dead spruce. And I watch my back. Alaskan men trade in bear stories like men in other countries might speak of sexual conquests. I am accustomed to eating. Now I can be eaten. There is perhaps no more Alaskan image than a grizzly bear swatting salmon out of a river, which makes the fact that Adam has to camp each night on riverbanks and beaches, often surrounded by salmon or the remains of Mama Bear's last meal, a little unnerving. But he didn't get eaten, and neither did Uli, his girlfriend, who by this time had joined him for the last part of the trip. They traveled for weeks, drifting through the flats, past Fort Yukon, camping by the side of the river on islands in the middle, sometimes catching fish, sometimes being given moose steaks or caribou or dried fish from people they met in tiny First Nation villages they would pass through every few hundred miles or so. Sometimes it's storms, sometimes it's hot. Sometimes they shiver in their tent over cups of tea. Sometimes they jump in the river to cool the sweat from a hard day's paddle. And
1: then they meet Mary... Mary was an amazing character to me. I came across a... I, I'd stayed in a village called Holy Cross and I'd met her daughter. And it was her daughter that told me that if I really wanted to understand fishing on the Yukon, Mary was the person that I should go and speak to. Mary was down at her fish camp. And a fish camp is part of what's been retained of the very traditional ways of life that a lot of First Nations people had in, 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 along the Yukon since since thousands of years ago. Really, until the gold rush, people had lived in this uh, semi-nomadic way where people would maybe make a moose camp at a place where moose were particularly good at hunting for the autumn, a a berry-picking camp where the berries would be good, go and spend the winter somewhere much higher where the the temperature wasn't quite so cold, and in the summer, they would come and make fish camp at a place along the Yukon where the fishing was known to be particularly good. And whilst a lot of people are now settled in, in villages, a kind of enforced settlement over the last hundred years, Fish camp is part of the culture which has still been retained until very recently when these fishing bands had come in. But Mary was in her 80s and and old habits die hard and Mary would still go out to her fish camp every year even though she wasn't really allowed to do much fishing anymore. And Mary's life to me was was incredible. Her her hospitality was so generous. When when I showed up with with Uli, my, my, my girlfriend, she invited us in and we sat in Mary's log cabin kitchen with the fire on and and Mary cooked us up some uh, halibut fish roe that she had uh, along with slices of spam (laughs) And, uh, and, and told us the story of her life. And she'd been raised in this incredibly traditional way of being totally nomadic and living in a skin tent and... And and then when she was 12 years old, the missionaries took her away from her mother. They said that her mother wasn't suitable to look after her and had taken her to the orphanage at Holy Cross.
0: Her mother stood on the banks of the river, eyes red and raw, and watched her child leave on a paddle steamer. For most kids, because this didn't just happen to Mary, it happened to many thousands of native children. That boat trip was just too expensive to come back home and visit. Many wouldn't return again until they were fully grown. And the orphanages were hard places, brutal places. Many kids were abused. Discipline was severe. Mary's conflicted about it. She says she would be on Skid Row if it wasn't for the nuns at that orphanage. But she also says she wished the nuns would have hugged her. She also said it was hard. She wasn't allowed to speak her language anymore. And sadly, her story isn't that unusual. Starting in the late 19th century here in Alaska and elsewhere in the States, native children were forcibly removed from their parents and taken to boarding schools as part of a systematic plan to kill the Indian, quote-unquote, and assimilate them into American society. After the gold rush when they'd lost their land, disease brought in from those gold rush miners decimated their communities and in their belief, illness came from evil spirits. It was easy for the missionaries to convince those that remained that the old ways were to blame that they were heathen the work of the devil and to be denounced they tricked them they took their children away and because of that a whole generation became rootless lost without a home or culture and the further they paddled down the river the more they saw the legacy of that atrocity alcoholism domestic violence suicide child abuse hopelessness and despair In less than a century, the entire fabric that had kept their society together for thousands of years had been ripped apart. But that culture, just like those 23 Yupik fishermen, is starting to fight back. It's not easy. They have a long way to go and many obstacles and little support. But their lifeline, what they're clinging to, to bring it back, to bring back the next generation and teach them the old ways before they're lost forever, is the salmon. That's why those Yupik fishermen defied the ban. Gandhi had his salt. The Yupik have their salmon.
1: Well, one of the great things about researching salmon on the Yukon was just the amount of salmon that I got to eat. Turning up these places and, and telling people that you're researching salmon, although it was a very poor year for salmon, there's a real sense of hospitality and what people have to share is their food. And, and so many nights we would sit down and have salmon everywhere you can imagine. We'd have it sushied and barbecued and raw and the... Hearts and the cheeks and the eyes and the bellies and the fins fried up as crisps and everywhere you can imagine. And and, and over these meals, I would talk to people about what it was that the salmon meant to them. And I began to realise very quickly that the salmon is much more than just about the salmon. There's a real sense, and and to go back to these fishermen which were on trial in Bethel, there's a real sense that the salmon will only keep on returning to the river if the salmon are respected. There's there's an idea that the salmon are willingly caught, that the salmon offer themselves to the fishermen. It's not this kind of bravado that the Western hunters might have about having being so skillful, being able to able to catch a fish or shoot a lion or whatever it is. The reason that the salmon allow themselves to be caught is because they've been respected. And in that sense, a lot of the First Nations people see that a fishing ban makes no sense at all because you're rejecting the salmon and the salmon will stop becoming if, if the salmon feel they're not wanted. So there was a real sense of, of respect and a need to respect the fish and, and talking to people about salmon made me see all these other things as well. It was a way into talking to people about what they hope for for their children's futures. It was about why they choose to live in these incredibly remote places. It was, what does it mean to be subsistence in a capitalist economy? What, what does it mean to be Yupik but also a 21st century American It was a, it was a real lens to, to open up this, this whole sense of what it means to live on the Yukon and, and, and wrestle with globalisation and climate change and poverty and all these very modern issues which are now affecting these places which, which seem to be very remote but in fact are not untouchable at all
0: Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Like all good adventures, he started with an idea of what it might be, but then it evolved and grew and became about so much more. And it's a beautiful idea he discovered too, isn't it? The First Nation concept of fishing is that the the salmon allow themselves to be caught. They give themselves to us. There's a humility in that, which we just don't see very often anymore. And that idea that reciprocity between the salmon and the people the river and the land is at the heart of what adam began to realize as he reached the end of his journey
1: from mary's fish camp there was another maybe three or four weeks to to reach the sea heading out over the yukon kuskokwim delta which is one of the largest river deltas in the world with a population of about ten thousand people it was strange to stop it was uh it almost feels like the world runs out of ideas or something. It's just this very sort of flat, these, these, these islands built up of silt and, and just sort of no topography or, or anything, Just and, and just looking out over the horizon knowing that Russia is the next place. This very sort of flat and endless sea. We took our clothes off and went for a swim as a way of sort of marking the end. And knowing that all these baby salmon at the same time would be Heading out into the sea from here to go and spend their adult lives out in the Pacific for a few years before before coming back on the last few months of their lives. It, it was an amazing journey as a way of trying to understand what's what's happening to the salmon and, and and what's happening to the people. And I suppose it gave me a lot of other reflections as well. I think one was was this original idea that I've I'd had of this of this very romanticized idea of the wilderness and going and kind of testing myself against the wilderness in this in in, in this way that a lot of people do and, and and you realize that it's really not wilderness at all for 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 people that have lived here either either now or in the past every single lake and mountain and and forest and tributary has has a name and a story and things have happened there and people have lived there and hunted and fished and berry picked and and if anything, the, the reason it feels like a wilderness is because so much of that culture has been has been forcibly erased, and the decline of the salmon is, is, is something else which is really starting to change that culture. I think more than anything, the journey made me realise, in some ways, everything's so stripped back to its bare bones along the Yukon. You have, you have the people, and you have the land, and you have the fish, and... And you realise that all those things are, are totally interconnected, not, not in a kind of poetic, ideological way, but, but truly connected. That, that, that The way that the people impact on the fish is, is just as much the case as the way that the fish impact along, upon the people. And I think that's just as true for, for us living in in, in, in England but, but it, those connections are just so much more obscured because our food comes from the supermarket and our water comes from the tap and, and it's much harder to see the impact that, that, that we're having on the things that we consume but being on the Yukon really made me feel that that everything is very intricately linked and, 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 and bound up. and. And that's just not something that that I feel that I can forget now that I've come back.
0: That's true and so important and something we can all be inspired by, I think. It is all interconnected. We don't see it here in our cities and modern lives as much as we would on the banks of the Yukon. Much of those webs are invisible to us now. But that doesn't mean they don't exist. As Adam says, the salmon story is our story. We are all linked, and what we do and what we consume does have an impact on everything and everyone around us. It might be small, it might feel insignificant, but it's not. Because to bring it back to the salt march, back to the beginning, and back to Gandhi, who said, we mirror the world, but the world also mirrors us. Be the change that you wish to see in it.
1: it, It feels like there is a way to preserve the king salmon it's it's not a done deal yet i'm i'm used to covering stories as an environmental journalist that do seem like a done deal and there is a real sense of hope in this one i think it's not it's not over yet certainly climate change is affecting the fish but there's been a lot of other uh, much more immediate human pressures, like like overfishing and selecting the biggest fish over a period of time, and not allowing stocks to regenerate, which can be addressed. And if those numbers are allowed to get back up, then maybe some of the other things which are starting to hit the fish, like climate change, could be almost mitigated by by by, by allowing the runs to become more healthy. But what's needed for that is is a dialogue. You know, Although these people are all connected by a river and connected by a fish, they live huge distances apart. 2,000 miles is the distance from London to Athens, and you're expecting people to, to manage fish stocks in the same way. So I'm, I hope that in some ways this, this book and, and, and a lot of the brilliant work that's being done by scientists along the river and by First Nations people can, can go some way to starting that dialogue.
0: I'm sure it will. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for writing this beautiful book and thank you for taking us on this incredible paddle 2,000 miles down the Yukon in search of its kings. If you're interested to read Adam's book, I will put all the details on the website and show notes. And if you're inspired to go for a paddle down the Yukon yourself, I've put up some ideas for that too. Massive thanks also to our composer today, Michael Cumber, AKA the sweet chap, AKA LID, LID, life and development. One of the most amazing musicians I know always an honor and a pleasure to work with you, mate. Please check out his stuff all linked to in the usual places. You will not be disappointed. Finally, And most importantly, thank you to all of you. It's so amazing to share these adventures together. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, if you liked what you heard, please spread the word. Inspire a fellow traveler, a fellow explorer, or just someone that needs an escape. Because when you do that, you spread that message of connection and wonder for this amazing planet of ours. And that's important because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.